Hi, I'm Donna McGovern, and I'm a real estate agent working in the Remax on the River office in the beautiful coastal town of Newburyport. I enjoy working with clients on the North Shore and in the Merrimack Valley areas. One of my specialties is I have an eco-broker certification, meaning I have a deep interest in protecting our environment and in energy efficiencies and cost-saving ideas. Buying and selling a home I know is an investment of which one must take seriously, but I also think it's important to have fun along the way. I found that the most successful transactions have been based on mutual trust and respect between all involved parties. I hope you take the time to give me a call so we can set up an appointment to meet and I can provide some information on how to have a positive and successful home buying and home selling experience. The number to reach me is 978-992-4535. That's 978-992-4535. If I were your real estate agent, you'd be home now. Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really Good morning. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca, and you are listening to AM 1510 NBC Sports Radio Boston. It is Gorgeous here at the studio in Marina Bay. Got a few questions for you while you have your first cup of java. Do you go to bed earlier or later than your partner just to avoid the possibility of sex? Are you being quiet as a church mouse for fear that your partner will want to get a little amorous? Are you feeling tempted to stray beyond your marriage to find companionship and sexual excitement? Well, today's topic is all about relationships, and we're going to start with discussing the hmm, sex-starved marriage and what couples can do to communicate their cravings with internationally renowned relationship expert Michelle Weiner-Davis. Michelle has appeared on Oprah, 48 Hours, The Today Show, CBS This Morning, and 2020. I'm sure you'll have questions for her, so I'm going to be on the lookout for emails, so feel free to chime in. My email is info at talkwithfrancesca.com. All right. Fasten your seatbelts. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for being on Talk with Francesca today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. So when Fifty Shades of Grey first came out, there was this reason to believe that there was this strong possibility that there are fewer relationships out there that were a little hungry for um, some spice between the sheets. You know, it's even the ones that could have cared less started talking about what they could be missing. So we're going to just dive in. Um, since you wrote the book, The Sex-Starved Marriage, can you tell our listening audience more specifically what a sex-starved marriage or relationship means? Absolutely. So it's not what many people think, which is the number of times people have sex weekly or monthly because unlike vitamins, there are no daily minimum requirements to ensure a healthy sex life. What a sex-starved marriage is when one spouse is desperately longing for more touch, more physical closeness, more sex, and the other spouse thinks, 
what is the big deal? Would you just get a life? Go, go take a cold shower. And when this major disconnect And that's happens, not always the, that's not always the, the woman. Absolutely right. <laughs> not. Absolutely not. I, you know, and I'll talk about that in just a yeah, minute, but yeah. when this major misunderstanding happens, what also happens is that intimacy on all levels tends to drop out of the relationship. They stop sitting next to each other on the couch. They stop spending time together. They don't laugh at each other's jokes. In essence, they stop being friends. And when this happens, what also happens is that it places the marriage at risk of infidelity and then even divorce. I mean, I really, I can't, I, I think, I, I really believe that you have to have a physical intimacy in order to have the emotional intimacy, don't you? Well, definitely. I, you know, some people say that as long as both people are not really yearning for physical touch, then it's okay. And the truth is, people become, become like toddlers where there's parallel play. They lead very separate lives. And what happens in most relationships, and I don't think people really are aware of this, is that the, when one person wants more sex than the other, the person with lower sexual desire controls the sexual relationship, not out of maliciousness. They may not do it intentionally, but when they want to have sex, there's sex. And when they don't want to have sex, there's no sex. And, I, and not only that, but the person with lower desire expects their higher desire spouse to not only go along with this program, but to not have resentment about it, and to certainly remain monogamous. And in the decades that I've been working with couples, I have found this tacit agreement to be unfair and unworkable. It really, um, it doesn't work. You know, why do you think talking about intimacy, though, is so, so difficult for so many? It's, you know, it, it, it almost seems the more the closer you become in your relationship, the more difficult it is to talk about it. Why would that be? Well, you know, the truth is, you know, what has always been shocking to me, and it shouldn't be because it's happened so many times, sex is a very difficult subject for most people to talk about. I work with couples who've been married for 20 to 30 years, and believe it or not, Francesca, they tell me that they've never spoken about sex with each other. They don't say what they like. They don't say what they don't like. They don't say what they want more of. And if you can't talk about sex, then there's no way that you can actually really know what turns your partner on. Because what turns people on in their 20s is very different from what turns them on in their 30s or their 40s. And so if you're, if you're someone who's 50 years old and you've been married for quite a while, and you think you know what your partner wants based on a conversation you had early on, you're operating on outdated data, that's for sure. So, but, but, so, uh, but still, why is it so difficult to talk about then? I think, you know, there's a, there's a big taboo when we're growing up. You know, generally our parents haven't been open with us about sex, although there's sex education in school. No one really teaches people that it's, it's a natural act to have sex, but it's not a natural act to have good, satisfying, loving sex. And so no one teaches us the communication skills, first of all, that they're important, and secondly, how to do it. So how would you um, do but that? The, but the good news is that there's information available out there so that anybody, even people who think that they have low desire, um, who wants a better sex life, can, can really have a robust sex life. But, you know, one of the most interesting things that I think, you know, many of your listeners would find fascinating is um, in my own practice, I, I started to notice that 
very often the person with low sexual desire, um, and oftentimes in this case it was the woman, but not always, um, she would say, you know, when I, I started to notice that when my husband approaches me, if I'm not in the mood because I'm thinking about other things, if I just am somewhat receptive to his advances, all of a sudden I get into it when we're doing it, and it feels really good, and then I feel closer afterwards. I actually had one man say that that's the exact pattern that happens with his wife, and he just wishes that his wife would write on her hand, I like sex, so she remembers it for the next time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you think the biggest reason sex falls apart in a relationship? I'm sorry, say that again? What do you think is the biggest reason that sex falls apart in a relationship? Well, you know, generally what I find is that there's one person who really feels like they need to have a close emotional connection. The problems have to be resolved. They have to spend time together. They have to talk. They have to feel connected emotionally before there's sex. And then generally they're married to someone who really feels that they need to have a very physical relationship. There has to be a lot of physical affection and sex in order for that person, often a man but not always, to want to spend time, to want to be invested, to want to talk about things. So the person who wants the emotional connection first is waiting for the other person to spend time with her, talk to her, and the person who wants the physical connection is waiting for the touch before he spends time with her or is invested in things that happen around the home. And uh, they're and so, all unwritten uh, rules at this point, too, well, right? That, exactly. But and in addition, each person waits for the other person to change before they approach their partner and that is a deadly waiting game that's the biggest catch-22 when i see things truly falling apart is i'm i'll change but you change first and what i tell couples is that you do not have the luxury of time to wait for your partner to change you need to be the one to tip over the first domino even if you are not in the mood to be sexual try touching more and watch how your husband comes closer to you or even if you're not in the mood to hear what she has to say about her friends or about her emotions or about you know the, the things that happen over the course of the day for her invest yourself and watch how that's an aphrodisiac for her to be closer to you physically take be proactive and take action it's almost um, sounding like it's the man who's never getting enough of course I think all men are dogs anyway. Now, now. Well, you know, it's interesting. But you wrote it's, The Sex Starved Wife. That's right. I was just, thank you. I was just about <laughs> so to say I was, that. So, <laughs> so when I wrote The Sex Starved Marriage, I devoted a mere five pages out of a, I don't know, 250-page book to the unique challenges uh, for women when they're the ones with a higher sex drive. And I became inundated with emails and letters and calls from women saying, Michelle, thank you so much for writing um, about women who have higher desire because that's me and no one talks about it. We don't talk about it with our friends because we feel so much shame because most women complain that their husbands are always chasing them around the living room uh, wanting sex. And so no one talks about it, and I feel like I'm the only one 
that's experiencing this problem. There's something wrong with me. And so I decided to write, after The Sex Star of Marriage, I wrote The Sex Star of Wife. And it's been a very popular book. I mean, I, it, <laughs> Come on, I it must think, be a bestseller. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, I really believe that low desire in men is America's best-kept secret. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. Oh, well, they, because they talk such a good game. Um, if you're just tuning in, you talk, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm here speaking with relationship expert Michelle Weiner-Davis. Uh, Michelle, don't you think that sex really is the glue when, you know, for the relationship to, to stay together? I mean, can you really have a relationship, a, a, a a marital relationship or any kind of a relationship, really, um, if you don't have sex? I I definitely do, because let's face it, other relationships we have, albeit very close, intimate relationships, generally are, are relationships without that sexual bond. You know, the one relationship that we have with our spouses um, that has, that includes sex, um, really sets it apart from all other kinds of relationships, and it really does make us feel close and connected, and not just emotionally. There are hormones um, that are released when we are being physically intimate, and one of them is oxytocin, and I think you know a lot of women know about that hormone because it's the one that's released when she's nursing uh, a newborn baby, but it also happens during sex, and it's a hormone about connection. And so there are physiological reasons that people feel more connected to one another, you know, when they're when they're touching and when they're having sex. A relationship without that is bound to feel distant. Well, what's the best way then to get the ball rolling if it's come to a dead stop? Well, um, I just call me your um, your Nike fan and to adopt the Nike philosophy. <laughs> just, just do, do it. it. And you know, there's some really good research that substantiates why people who have low desire should just do it. Um, you know, the, no, the, the way most people think about the human sexual response cycle, it's in four stages. First comes desire, which means that you're doing something and all of a sudden you have this random, lusty thought. Then you get with your partner and you're physically aroused. Second stage is arousal. Third one is orgasm. And fourth is resolution when your body goes back to its normal resting state. But what, what a researcher has found, and in my own clinical practice, I see this on a regular basis, that for over half the population, stages one and two are reversed, which means that first comes arousal and then comes desire, that your bodies have to be stimulated before your brains actually say, you know what, this is fun, I want to do this. So if you are willing to be receptive to your partner's advances, even if you're not totally in the mood, many, many people, millions of people say that it was an enjoyable experience and that they, they, again, felt much closer to their spouses as a result. So just do it. So just do it. Michelle Weiner-Davis, author of The Sex-Starved Marriage and The Sex-Starved Wife. Um, is there anything that shouldn't be discussed with your partner that could be a real super turnoff? Well, I, I'm a very big believer in the value of sharing what works for you and doesn't work for you sexually. Having said that, um, sometimes people give direction to their spouses in very negative, critical ways, which is, you know, a real desire killer, um, especially when it's happening in the bedroom. You should always talk about what you want more of and what feels good, um, rather than saying uh, that someone's doing a bad job or, or really doesn't get it. Those kinds of criticisms have no place in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. So one's hot, one's not. 
And is it really, it really is possible for a relationship to survive when one has a far bigger sex drive than the other? You know what, if that weren't the case, um, we would have a much higher divorce rate pretty than we already high. have, <laughs> which is pretty high. That's yeah. right. Because, mil- you know, the, the single um, biggest problem brought to sex therapists is a sexual desire gap. And people do survive it. Um, they, learn, they learn ways to meet in the middle. They also learn ways to accept that n- there are no two people who are clones that if you have higher desire, your spouse will probably never be exactly like you. But there are ways around it. I mean, for example, one of the suggestions that I make to the person with the lower desire is that even if you're not in the mood, it doesn't mean that you can't pleasure your spouse. There's no rule against that. And the only reason, the, the one, one time, sometimes people with higher desire, when I make that suggestion, they'll say, well, I don't want that to happen because part of what turns me on is when my wife gets turned on. Yeah. And I'll say, well, then get over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michelle, I have a couple of um, emails coming through with some questions. Um, okay. And, and this woman's name also is Michelle, and she's from Hanover. And she said, do you think you should do it even if you're not in the mood? Well, you've kind of answered that question, actually, obviously, uh, yeah, that you absolutely. should no matter what, whether you... Whether whether you want to or not, do it anyway. Well, Just I do because I, because I think you will get in the mood and it'll help you feel closer and it'll make your spouse much nicer. Okay, and here's another one. Dina from Hingham. It seems like the second I got married, I became almost untouchable to my husband. Too busy with work, too tired, all the typical excuses. I feel like his mother rather than his wife. Ugh. I am thinking I want to leave because there is no hope for change. It's been going on for 10 years. Any suggestions? Well, of course, I always want to know what have you tried because so often, um, you know, either they've tried not much. Um, I, I guess I would say have an open-hearted conversation about what it's been meaning to you um, in terms of your vulnerability, in terms of how you feel about yourself as a woman, in terms of the fact that you don't feel loved and you don't feel connected, and see if that has impact because so often the person with lower desire goes from talking kindly about it to getting very angry and the anger permeates their relationship and so talk about your feelings openly and also talk about the fact that you're really strongly considering leaving and see if that makes an impact. This is interesting um, that these questions are all coming in from women. (laughs) Here's another one, Jane from Beverly. I'm starting to question whether or not I'm attractive to my husband because he has no interest in sex. I am sure he is not having an affair. We are best friends, but that's it. I want the connection, but feel like he's perfectly content with just friendship. I feel so deprived. I am always looking at other couples and wondering why they look so happy. Hmm. You know, my heart really goes out to her because this is what I was saying before. With men, if their wives aren't interested in sex, they can go into the locker room or go out for a beer and they can complain about it and their wives are always having headaches and it's a normal, natural thing. But like the woman who just wrote in, women tend to internalize the reason that their husbands aren't wanting sex, that they're not attractive, there's something wrong with them. And I want that woman who just wrote that letter to hear me say that there are so many reasons that a man might not want sex and it may have absolutely nothing to do with her attractiveness or her desirability. He could be depressed. Um, he could have low testosterone. Um, he could be um, obsessed with work. 
and he, he needs to be, you know, sort of set straight. But this may not have anything to do with her, and I know it's easier said than done to say, don't take this personally. Right, because the first thing that ends up happening is they get angry. That's right. That's right. right. And then the, and, and so then feeling, I, and then the more you're help. ignored, yeah, and the more you're ignored, the worse it becomes until it turns from, you know, being sort of sad to mad to anger to rage, right? Exactly. Right. Okay. Absolutely. And here's another, here's just still another one, another woman. <laughs> um, I have a weird question. Angela from Milton says, neither of us are interested, but think we should be. So we're fighting about it. Now, that's interesting. But when he tries, I just don't want it. And when I try, he just doesn't want it. Could it be that we just really don't care? <laughs> that's an interesting Yeah. That's an interesting interesting one. They both don't want it. They both don't want it, but they're fighting because they don't want it. Why are they fighting that they don't want it? So it sounds like they want it. They don't know how to face it. Exactly. They don't know how to start talking about it. And my guess about that one is that there probably are some underlying issues in the relationship that neither of them are dealing with and that it would be best to sort of figure out what that might be and clear the air and start to to work on this. And by the way, the other thing that she says, you know, when I want it, he doesn't. When he wants it, I don't. That is a really great way to avoid intimacy, to take turns wanting it. And so I would just have to wonder, if I were working with this couple, um, you know, whether either one of them has a fear of intimacy and what would need to happen in order for them to take a step toward each other. It sure sounds, Michelle, like that it's... uh from my listeners that um, it's the men that are putting the brakes on sex more than women. But, of course, I suppose L.L. Bean pajamas don't don't help. <laughs> um, we just have time for a few more questions. Well, you know, it's, it's a really, uh, this is, when you open up the subject of uh, men with low desire, this is what my experience was. All of a sudden, women come out of the woodwork. They need to read um, The Sex Star of Wife because I think they need help in understanding they're not alone and that there actually are things that they can do to make a difference. Uh, okay, I think we have time for one more question. Donna from Newburyport, still yet another woman. I wish some guy would question. I mean, these guys, they're all afraid to talk about it. Yeah, but they're not afraid to talk about it in the locker room or with their, guy, their friends with the beer, but, you know. <laughs> okay, right. let's see. Don't you think, Michelle, that eventually all relationships, uh, sex lives become dead? This is my third marriage, and all three have eventually become sexless. Oh, hmm. uh, no, I don't, actually. People, um, the research actually shows people who are in uh, long-term marriages, um, actually end up having the best sexual relationships, um, better than uh, people who are living together, better than uh, people in, even in the beginning of relationships. So it, doesn't, it definitely does not have to be that way. Um, however, having said that, if, if a relationship is to remain passionate, it takes intention, it takes um, conscious effort to keep passion alive, so, um, yeah, so guys, get, out, get your nose out of the Wall Street Journal. Michelle Weiner Davis, thank you for being on Talk with Francesca today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. appreciate it. All right, next up, how playing the blame game can permanently damage your relationship. When we come back, don't touch that dial. Are you tired of looking tired? Well, I have the answer, Botox. That's right, Botox. 
It's one of the most common cosmetic procedures performed in the United States, and Rose Rogers of Laser RN Skincare is just the professional to do it. Her warm and caring manner will leave you with a relaxed look on your face, and there's absolutely no downtime. When it comes to injectables, Rose ranks among the most highly trained and well-respected nurse injectors. She has been administering safe, effective cosmetic treatments in Massachusetts for over 10 years. Under the direction and supervision of Dr. Michelle Sassmore, a board-certified plastic surgeon at Riversong Plastic Surgery in Newburyport, she has performed hundreds of Botox and filler treatments. So don't just go to anyone for Botox. Go to Rose Rogers, Laser RN Skincare, 12 Bay Street, Wilmington, and know you are in the best of hands. And just wait for your friends to ask where you went on vacation. You know they will. Call Rose Rogers, Laser RN Skincare at 978-203-0560. That number again is 978-203-0560. You'll be glad you did. Hi, I'm Donna McGovern, and I'm a real estate agent working in the Remax on the River office in the beautiful coastal town of Newburyport. I enjoy working with clients on the North Shore and in the Merrimack Valley areas. One of my specialties is I have an eco-broker certification, meaning I have a deep interest in protecting our environment and in energy efficiencies and cost-saving ideas. Buying and selling a home I know is an investment of which one must take seriously, but I also think it's important to have fun along the way. I found that the most successful transactions have been based on mutual trust and respect between all involved parties. I hope you take the time to give me a call so we can set up an appointment to meet and I can provide some information on how to have a positive and successful home buying and home selling experience. The number to reach me is 978-992-4535. That's 978-992-4535. If I were your real estate agent, you'd be home now. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Your own anger will always get in the way of your success. But what you may not realize is that very often it's someone else's anger response that's getting in your way. In the new book, Outsmarting Anger, Seven Ways to Diffuse Our Most Dangerous Emotion, Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Joseph Schrand shows you the tools within your own brain that can recognize and diffuse the deep-seated anger emotions of others, such as mistrust, envy, and suspicion. Dr. Schrand observes, you control no one, but you can influence people, especially when it comes to preventing anger. Samuel Shem, author of The House of God, says outsmarting anger is vibrant, comprehensive, and smart. An in-depth exploration that's an easy read, practical, and most importantly, helpful. Order Outsmarting Anger on Amazon.com and other ebook locations now. Outsmarting Anger by Dr. Joseph Schrand. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca every Saturday morning right here on 1510 NBC and Yahoo Sports Radio Boston. 
right, we're back, and with me now is Dr. Stephen Stosny. He is the founder of Compassion Power. He has written many books, most recently, Living and Loving After Betrayal and How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. Both of these fabulous books will be giving away to the second and fourth emailer to info at talkwithfrancesca.com. So jump on your computer now. Dr. Stosny has also appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, CNN, and Anderson Cooper 360. He's also been the subject of many articles on the Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, and U.S. News, to name a few. All right. Welcome, Dr. Stosny, and thank you for being on Talk with Francesca today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, we're pretty sexed out at this point, but would love to get your take on what uh, makes a relationship go south. So if it's not sex, you say blaming is a big no-no. Can you tell our listening audience more? Well, uh, the road to psychological ruin actually begins with blame. Uh, When you're blaming in a relationship, although it's natural to do it, it's a transfer of guilt and shame, and we all have guilt and shame in our relationships. so it's natural to do it, but it makes the other person defensive, and when people are defensive, they can't listen. So what do you and mean it's, it's, a, it's a transference of guilt and shame? So if the person is feeling guilty and shameful about something, that, then, they're, then they're going to blame the other person? Well, what if the person really did do something wrong? Well, the thing that they did wrong is going to stir guilt and shame. If it doesn't stir guilt and shame, then you focus on solutions. The motivation to blame comes from the transfer of guilt and shame. I mean, there's been all kinds of social reinforcement from that, from the time of scapegoating, where you would put your sins on a goat and send it into the desert. Okay, so so let's just back up here for a second because I'm getting getting lost. So you're saying if someone does something really wrong, let, let's say uh, cheating, okay? So and you blamed the person for for why this happened. You're saying that that's, I mean, obviously blaming is never a good thing. But you're saying that that person who was blaming them is transferring their guilt and shame. Yeah, of course, with with infidelity, you've got lots of shame and guilt involved in it. That's what makes it so hard to uh, to reconcile and to uh, overcome. Mm-hmm. If your partner cheats on you, uh, you're going to feel guilt and shame. It's irrational. It's not fair that you do, but that's part of how emotional bonds work. So oh, okay. Negative, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. The negative reinforcement of emotional bonds are guilt and shame. If you do anything to violate them, or if they're violated by anyone else, you're going to feel guilt and shame. So what, what is the function of blame? It's to transfer the guilt and shame, and it starts at a very early age. Toddlers start doing it. If you go into the room <laughs> and the lamp's broken, you ask the two-year-old what happened, he'll blame it on someone else. <laughs> well, in fact, my daughter was an only child. She used to blame it on her imaginary friend. <laughs> and so why would you say that we do that, though? We do it because we don't know any other way to regulate the guilt and shame. In fact, treatment for blamers is to give them, a, I call it core value, a sense of they can hold on to their value even when they don't like their partner's behavior. They don't have to feel devalued by their partner's behavior. And then they don't have to devalue their partners. So it, it really, it's, it's one of the main reasons that, that a relationship really goes south? Uh, it's the... It, primary reason, yeah. It's because I feel bad and it's your fault. There's nothing I can do about it. So that my entire emotional well-being is depending on you, but I'm already blaming you for something, so it's very hard for you to 
be compassionate to me when I'm blaming you. They're making you feel bad so that so you're they're you're trying to get the other person to take away your bad feelings. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's the toddler okay. impulse too, uh, you know. Okay, got it. Got when, it. When a toddler hits you with a tissue <laughs> See, we used to think, when I was in graduate school, we learned that toddlers go through this period where they hit, kick, scratch, and bite because we have to be socialized. We're little animals. And now we know that's not true. What they're really trying to do is to get you to understand how hurt they are. And that's really what blame is. It's an adult acting like a toddler. I'm going to hurt you so you will understand how hurt I am. Can you repeat that one more time? The whole thing? No, no, no. Just just the last part about I'll hurt you, so you, so you'll know how hurt I am. Yeah, blame is devaluing. And I want to lower your value, so that you will know how hurt I am. Well, that's an interesting way to let someone know that you're hurt. Why not just the old-fashioned way? You've hurt me. Uh, that would be a much more healthy way to do it. But when we're upset, we revert to our toddler brains. Uh huh. So that so, but but. Why, but we're adults. Why wouldn't we know then just to say this is a problem for me, I'm, I'm feeling hurt about this, or is it just that because if we're really hurt about something, we get reactive? Most people who are blamers get reactive. I don't think most people in the world are blamers. Most people in the world are able to say that, but therapists see the blamer. And, and what's the difference between blame and responsibility? Well, blame is focused on past causes, and responsibility is focused on uh, future solutions. So uh, blame renders you powerless. There's nothing I can do about it. You have to do something about it. And with responsibility, you want to participate in the solution. So could, let, let's get practical here. Let's, let's um, you set a scene of a situation with, with two people who are, um, you know, one is blaming the other and, and how it, it shouldn't be, so, and then how it could be. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, you, you mean like a husband and wife blaming each other? Yeah, so like you're seeing a couple and, and give us an example of how one might blame the other and how that's negative and not effective, and then a, way, a better way to do it that would be much more effective and much more loving. Well, bl blame is you don't care about me. All you care about is yourself, and that's because any number of infractions could cause that from you know, more serious cheating and deceit down to you left the toilet seat up. Uh, the, see, we're more likely to blame our loved ones because love stirs more guilt and shame. So we can take it when our bosses are on their iPad when we're talking to them, but not our spouses. Um, Interesting. We were just um, talking with Michelle Weiner Davis, who wrote the Sex Starved marriage and we're talking about um sex and um you know taking responsibility and how how can a I'm I'm getting tongue tied here um how can someone take responsibility when they're in a relationship when the sex is going down and well it, uh, sex is also a thing that has a lot of shame heaped around it if we're not having sex because I'm not desirable, and if I'm not desirable, then I'm not lovable. So the blame is to punish you for making me feel unlovable. What you have to do is, uh, I call it binocular vision. That's what I work with uh, clients to see. You have to see your partner's perspective alongside your own. Never trust your own perspective if you don't get your partner's. 
the only way, realistic way to have a, uh, an accurate view of your relationship. Uh, and it means seeing beneath symptoms and defenses a greater vulnerability. So if my partner's blaming me, I know that she's feeling guilty or ashamed. And I don't want her to feel guilty or and ashamed, so I'm going to be more compassionate and kind to her. It's sad. But yeah. binocular vision leads to compassion and kindness. Yes, let's talk about your, your organization, Compassion Power. Is that the name of it? Well, it was founded almost 30 years ago uh, on based on the proposition that you're more powerful when you're compassionate than when you're angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started working with violent people in prison, actually, <laughs> to try to teach them more, to be more compassionate and then worked into a more general population. You are for far more powerful in your compassion when you're ang- than when you're angry. When you're angry, someone is living rent-free in your head and controlling what you think, feel, and do. And mm-hmm. when you're compassionate, you're being true to your deeper values, which is really who you are as a person. Uh, and you're being, but the more compassionate you are, obviously, the more vulnerable you are. Uh, no, actually, the, it's just the opposite. The more compassionate you are, the less likely to be hurt you are because you understand if you're disappointed that it's because of the other person's uh, vulnerability, not because of inadequacy in you. When you're angry or resentful, that's when you're vulnerable because you're construing every vulnerability of everyone else, especially your partner. You're taking it personally. It's about you not being lovable. So So what's the solution? You're far less vulnerable with compassion than with anger. So what's the solution? The solution is to develop more compassion and kindness. And so give us some examples of how you might do that. Well, in the sex example, if my partner's rejecting me, I I understand that she is uh, not feeling close, she's not feeling connected, so the solution isn't to punish her for rejecting me, it's to figure out how we can feel closer and more connected. If I get irritated with her and blame her for not wanting to have sex with me, uh, that's not an aphrodisiac. <laughs> She's mm-hmm. not going to be feel closer and, and connected. And that's how those things become downward spirals. The more you blame, the, the uh, less vulnerable the person's willing to be with you. It's interesting that we are more likely to uh, blame our spouses or partners than than our coworkers or our bosses or you know it, it, it's it seems like the closer you are to someone the the less um inclined you are to almost be compassionate in some ways would you agree with that yes oh it's more difficult to be compassionate to them because wow. we take their shortcomings personally Instead of seeing my partner's distracted, I'll feel rejected if she's not paying attention to me. Whereas a, a coworker, I'm willing, because I don't love my coworker, I'm not going to feel unlovable because my coworker's not paying attention to me. So when you love someone, they have enormous power to make you feel good. And because they have that same power to make you feel good, they have an equal power to make you feel bad. And they can make you feel bad just by having their own agenda. <laughs> Just by having their own vulnerabilities, and these are uh, patterns I think that are that probably start um, long before we're even old enough to be in love. Would you say? Oh, the habit of blaming begins at two. Yes, 
Uh, and it gets – some people even get to be blamed junkies because you have to have a certain amount of adrenaline to blame. It overcomes a barrier, that, a social barrier about devaluing people. And the closer you are to the person, the, the bigger the barrier to devaluing them. So you have to have adrenaline to do it. Adrenaline gives you a temporary sense of power and confidence. That's an amphetamine. Then it wears off and you feel depressed. So to militate out of that depressed mood, you have to blame more. And pretty soon your brain starts looking for something to blame just to have the energy and confidence. <laughs> wow. Uh, so there are blame junkies out there? Uh, that's most of my clients. Yeah, we do weekend boot camps for them, and they fill up with uh, chronic blamers. Oh, so talk about that. Tell us a little bit about your boot camp. Well, the way that, that chronic blame comes out in a relationship is chronic resentment because you're, uh, uh, you're blaming continually, and then the, the other person's getting defensive and starts every good defense system has a preemptive strike capability, so they start blaming back. Uh, and while you're blaming, you're cut off from your ability to create value in life. When you're blaming, you lose interest and enjoyment. And that gets to be chronic. So interest and enjoyment are primary motivators in life. They generate energy. When you don't have interest and enjoyment, your only energy is going to come from adrenaline, which mm -hmm. requires blame. Mm -hmm. So gets to be a downward spiral. Oh my gosh. Okay, if you're, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Stosny. Um, he's the founder of Compassion Power, and he's also written um, many books, but recently, Living and Loving After Betrayal, and How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. So um, let's just sort of get the, um, the short version of Living and Loving After Betrayal first. Um, I'd like to get sort of a, um, a summation of both of those books. They both sound very interesting. Um, how how that that's a tough one to live and love after betrayal. I don't know. There's some people that seem to be have an easier time with that than others. They're able to stay in their relationship where others. It's like if there's infidelity, that is it. So I assume that your book is how to be able to live and love your partner after that. Well, not necessarily with your partner. Ah. Uh, and. Uh, the focus is whether you stay with your partner or not after an intimate betrayal, you've got to heal first right. and then repair. And I don't think you can decide if you really, it's in your best interest to repair until you begin to heal. Otherwise, you're just going to run into the relationship out of fear of abandonment mm -hmm. and not really heal. So, so that's the focus on, of the book. But, but the betrayal isn't just infidelity. Uh, Intimate betrayal is when you form an emotional bond with someone, uh, there's an implicit promise that they will care how you feel and won't intentionally hurt you. So anything that breaks that implicit promise feels like betrayal in an intimate relationship. So that can be abuse, it can be deceit, infidelity. Uh, uh, I get a lot of now is financial betrayals. Mm. One person doing something with the 401k that the other one doesn't know about, and then their floor of security is swept out from under them. Mm. So anytime there's that kind of a betrayal, mm -hmm. uh, it strikes at your ability to trust and love. Right. Uh, and that's why it's so difficult. But what makes it even more difficult is the natural defenses that arise from that 
which are blame, resentment, and anger, actually make it harder for you to heal because they cut you off from creating value in your life. Mm, There's also a sense of abandonment when that kind of thing happens, no? Pardon me? There's also a sense of abandonment when that kind of thing happens. Yeah, always. And because uh, we don't like abandonment, we try to hold on to the relationship out of too much desperation. And that's what they they won't you won't be able to repair it if you're trying to do it out of desperation. Right. So it's much better to back off and heal first and mm-hmm. then decide if you want to repair it and then the book will show you what you can do to repair it if you decide to do that. But three quarters of the book is on personal healing, building oh, excellent. Excellent. what I call the immune system of the self, which is your ability to create value, interest, and enjoyment. And, and what about the other book, How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It? Now, I would think that if you've got some issues, that communication is the way to go, no? Well, I, actually, why do you communicate? What's the goal of communicating? Uh, the com- but most people say it's to feel connected, to feel closer. Right. Uh, so th- the problem with that is, you, you know, the typical, honey, we need to talk. <laughs> You never come out of that feeling closer, and it's because it's usually going to be about the other person's shortcomings, right. so. how they're failing you in some way. So, so what the book does is give strategies for connecting before you talk. Good communication flows out of connection, but not the other way around. If you think of your relationship when you've had the best communication, you were connected, <laughs> Right, right. The talking didn't get you connected. The talking came out of the connection. So how how do you then, so so in your book, can you explain a little bit about how then you uh, connect without talking about it? Well, you have to develop appreciation of your partner, what you like like about him or her. Have fun. Pardon me? Have fun together, have a, have a date night, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, intimate relationships actually provide the meaning of life for most people. Pardon me? So they provide the meaning of life. What does? Intimate re- love oh, relationships. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, research on meaning shows that's what people identify along with God and religion. They identify in family relationships as at the top of what makes life meaningful. But we don't think about meaning unless we're losing it or have lost it. (laughs) So what we encourage you to do is think about meaning. Why do you get up and go to work every day? It's because of your family. Mm -hmm. So if you're more centered on the meaning of your life, then a little irritations won't disconnect you. They're not that important. Right. So it's really putting what's most important first, and for most people, that's connecting. Mm-hmm. But talking won't get you connected. Talking comes out of connection. So there's, uh, there's people also who blame themselves for everything. And what do you, you know, is that just as bad as blaming others? It is because it locks you into the problem solving part, or problem part of your brain and locks you out of the problem solving. See, when, when you think of who's to fault, whether it's me or you, mm-hmm. self-blame or blaming you, uh, what your brain has to do is come up with all the explanations of why I'm to blame or you're to blame. And it never gets to how to make it better. <laughs> See, when, when a bad thing happens, your brain has to do three operations. The first comes from the toddler brain or the limbic. That's the alarm. Bad, mm-hmm. bad, bad. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, more 
less developed part of the prefrontal cortex has to assess how bad is it, how much damage has been done. And then you have to move to the advanced part of the prefrontal cortex, which is improve, make it better. What, we, what happens with blame is you get stuck in a feedback loop between the first part. Right. How, it's bad, bad, bad. How bad is it? Oh, it's worse than I thought. Bad, 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 bad. Oh and you gosh. never get to improve. And the same thing happens no matter who the object of the blame is, whether it's yourself or others. So uh, what you want to do is replace blame with responsibility. Mm-hmm. You're not... May or may not be to blame for why it happened, but your your responsibility to make it better. And as soon as you take responsibility to make it better, you move into that more advanced part of your brain where most of your mental power is. Speaking about responsibility, that's interesting because sometimes I think we can get wrapped up in if someone isn't taking their side, if, if you're in a relationship and one isn't taking their side of the responsibility, it, it can the blaming can keep up. Do you know, Right? Do you know what I'm well, saying? Well, uh, that only happens, in my experience, when we confuse responsibility with blame. In other words, if my partner's not taking responsibility for helping to improve our relationship, it's because I'm blaming her. But so, if I say, you know, this is a problem, what, how, what can we do to make it better? Rather than, because you're doing this, I'm unhappy. That's ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I hear What you. can we do to feel closer and more connected? Then you, you're, you're inviting responsibility, and you're seeing responsibility empowers you. Blame makes you powerless, and when you take responsibility, you feel empowered to improve. Fantastic. Okay. Dr. Steven Strasny, thanks so much for being on Talk with Francesca today. It's been a pleasure. Mine, too. Thank you for having me. Okay. All right, it's time to say until next week, but you don't have to wait until next week for us to chat. Send me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com, and I'll get right back to you. And if you want to know more about Talk with Francesca and what's on the horizon, visit my website, Talk with Francesca, and click on Upcoming Shows. Have a fantastic week, and I hope I gave you something to talk about. Hi, I'm Donna McGovern, and I'm a real estate agent working in the Remax on the River office in the beautiful coastal town of Newburyport. I enjoy working with clients on the North Shore and in the Merrimack Valley areas. One of my specialties is I have an eco-broker certification, meaning I have a deep interest in protecting our environment and in energy efficiencies and cost-saving ideas. Buying and selling a home I know is an investment of which one must take seriously, but I also think it's important to have fun along the way. I found that the most successful transactions have been based on mutual trust and respect between all involved parties. I hope you take the time to give me a call so we can set up an appointment to meet and I can provide some information on how to have a positive and successful home buying and home selling experience. The number to reach me is 978-992-4535. That's 978-992-4535. If I were your real estate agent, you'd be home now. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. 
Your own anger will always get in the way of your success. But what you may not realize is that very often it's someone else's anger response that's getting in your way. In the new book, Outsmarting Anger, Seven Ways to Diffuse Our Most Dangerous Emotion, Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Joseph Schrand shows you the tools within your own brain that can recognize and diffuse the deep-seated anger emotions of others, such as mistrust, envy, and suspicion. Dr. Schrand observes, you control no one, but you can influence people, especially when it comes to preventing anger. Samuel Shem, author of The House of God, says outsmarting anger is vibrant, comprehensive, and smart. An in-depth exploration that's an easy read, practical, and most importantly, helpful. Order Outsmarting Anger on Amazon.com and other ebook locations now. Outsmarting Anger by Dr. Joseph Schrand.